Welcome to the Slightly Educated Podcast. Today we have Emily Dotson on, and she is currently the Coordinator of Student Conduct at Arizona State University, and she was previously the Restorative Justice Coordinator at the University of Dayton, and she's been working on restorative justice in the academic setting for a couple years now. And we start the podcast off with talking about advantages and disadvantages restorative justice has over punitive systems and some first-hand accounts she has. We then talk about some misconceptions people have about restorative justice, mainly that the offender gets off easy, and then we move into whether or not letting the victim have a say in the punishment is a problem for restorative justice. And then we talk about punishment itself why restorative justice punishes differently than the punitive system and what that means in terms of sentencing and punishment in general. And lastly, we talk about how restorative justice can be used in a social situation. Talk about how restorative justice can handle misconduct. And I hope you enjoy the podcast. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Uh, pretty good. Pretty good. So I think to start, we can start with like advantages over the retributive justice that restorative justice has, specifically what you've noticed um, firsthand. Yeah. So I think advantages that it has over a regular punitive system. And I think punitive systems are all about just like, you know, giving punishment and that's it. It's like, okay, well, you did this, so now you have to do this in order to not really make up for it though it's basically we're we're giving you this because we think this is what you deserve for messing up or you know whatever while restorative justice the advantage to it is that there can really be some actual learning from it like i look at at least within higher education punitive systems all have like okay you made you messed up by you know breaking a policy so let's have you write a research paper on that and it's like number one no student wants to write a research paper number two like that they don't have to write for class and number two, like, what are you actually learning from a research paper unless it's something that you're interested in? So yeah. it's just be a whole bunch of stuff regurgitated back on a piece of paper. So with restorative justice, it's all, it all surrounds, like, conversations, hearing how your actions impacted not only the community but people within the community. So, like, hearing firsthand from how somebody was woken up to you drunkenly coming back into the dorm and – how the RA had to wake up and call the university police department, how university police department, if some of them were on call, had to, you know, get out of bed or leave their families or, you know, whatever. If you puked in the hallway, what, like, maintenance or facilities person had to respond to that super late at night. Like, there's more things that are being impacted by somebody getting wasted on a college campus than I think a lot of students realize. And so restorative justice, at least on a college campus, gives the opportunity for that conversation to be had and actual learning from mistakes to take place. Cause I think like it's that key of, of feeling guilt, um, like seeing how your effect, your actions affected other people and feeling that guilt is what kind of makes the learning happen. Cause it's like, Oh, I don't want to feel like this again. So let's actually learn from this. <laughs> yeah. And ultimately like it's a, I think it's a worse form. I wouldn't, I don't want to say worse, but it's, it feels everybody has the feeling of like shame when they, you know, they didn't do something, they didn't do what they were supposed to do, um, and now they have to, like, pay the price. And, like, 
a big aspect of that is like looking into the person's eyes that like you let down and like saying like yeah I uh, I messed up and uh, at least in like um, uh, like the court system that's a big thing like maybe you might not even see like the person you harmed at all and so it's very disjointed in that like you don't get to see like you said your actions have effects. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's like I always tell the students, like, beyond actions, like, words, too. Like, your words mean things when you say them. Your actions mean things when you complete them. So it's just like, you know, it's beyond me just telling you that you messed up. Like, you need to realize that you messed up. And the people who choose not to realize it during that conversation are the recurring offenders. So they're the people that we see again. And hopefully that second time they learn from it. But unfortunately, the more times that you mess up, at least, yeah, I think in both, like, a college campus and – um, through like the judicial system it's like the more times you come back the harder it's going to be to get out of it i don't know about you but i think it's much harder to look someone in the face and say yeah this is never going to happen again and then yeah. do it again i think that's a lot harder than like you know writing a, a an essay a 300 word essay or something and just turning it in just like emailing it to someone yeah i probably won't puke in the dorm dorm hallway again <laughs> <laughs> and uh we've been over like some of the uh the cost is kind of rampant for like the disadvantage things because you're kind of just kind of just throwing administrators time at students which it's good if you want to solve problems it's bad if you want to keep the budget down i guess yeah, yeah. i mean i think oh, like there's there's a but i think it's like, every situation is different and there's little wins that you experience with every different situation i know at the last institution when i was at university of dayton like the sort of justice work that I got to do there with the students who returned from suspension, each one had kind of a different experience when they were suspended. Each one had a different experience when they were coming back. So I think beyond like the people who have to go through it, like who experience it, but I think the people who participate in it as well, it provides closure. It provides growth. It provides just so much more than even to facilitate. I mean, to facilitate it and to watch that, learning happen and to watch that mediation, I guess, if you will, and like see the student truly grow in front of me was amazing for my personal growth and for everybody else that participated that was on the University of Dayton's campus. So I think like beyond just the personal growth of the offender, it's a personal growth and kind of closure situation and allows everybody that was involved to to say their piece, to feel like that they were heard. And I think that that's really important in today's day and age. Yeah, and I think you correct me if I'm wrong. I think you said that uh, once, like all the students were like, "Yeah, I didn't know that I had access to these kinds of resources." That was a big one, um, and that um, um, maybe one person said to you that like they probably wouldn't have gotten through it if they didn't have this kind of program. Yeah, um, like actually yeah. came back to the campus, which the college doesn't want, you know, students to you know drop out. They they don't want that, but they have to punish people. Exactly. Exactly. And I think like that's at least with student conduct. So a lot of people think that student conduct offices, even like the judicial system too, are out to get people. And I know I can't necessarily speak for the judicial system. I would like to think more positively about it, but they're not out to get people. But I can honestly say like from a student conduct at a university perspective, like we are not out to get anybody, number one, because it creates more work for us. Like we look forward to the day where we don't have to see any students because it's like, holy gosh, we're doing something right, you know? And um is there any, like, large, like, misconceptions about uh, restorative justice? Do you think, um, like, what what about the system do most people think that's not really true? Is there anything like that? 
Yeah, I think for some of my research that I did before I had to do my literature for my thesis, um, some of the things that I read were that people didn't think that it was hard enough on students or on people in general, that it was almost like you were letting them off easy. And I don't think that that's necessarily the case. I think that if somebody fakes it to get through the whole thing and doesn't actually want to take responsibility for their actions, but is just going to say and not actually learn, then I guess, yeah, it can be looked at as easier. But that's the thing. Like most of the time when it comes to restorative justice practices, a lot of the prep work, like you can tell if somebody's actually invested in it or not. And it doesn't work unless everybody is invested. So I think a common misconception is that you're not being hard enough on somebody if you're just giving them a conversation. But it's like, Beyond that, there's other sanctioning that happens, like more than just the conversation. The conversation is like the key piece to it, though, to to actually promote learning and to make it educational overall. Which is a funny complaint because um, with the former systems, there's not, besides like the essays, there's no way to, I think it's easier to fake it in the old systems. And um, like you don't have to be, not be on board or agree with um, anything in like a punitive system. Like it's just, this is... There's no, like, arguing about it. There's no, like, uh, uh, this is what you, like, they tell you what you did, but, like, you don't participate in the, you know, the um, apologizing and stuff, basically. You don't have to. As long as you, you don't do whatever the punishment suggests, like, it's it's totally fine. I remember the other point I was going to make oh, about on that. Okay. So, and then the other thing is, like, with you said earlier that it's not the goal of anybody at an institution to, to suspend anybody, to get rid of anybody, to kick anybody out of school. It's not because especially public schools now, all public universities and even like community colleges, the funds for higher education are actually like financially not that great. Like, and they're really dependent. The state, the state gives more money to institutions with a higher rate of people graduating, with a higher rate of people getting through, finishing that four years, getting that degree. That's how the university gets money. Really, the goal is never to suspend somebody yeah. because like we're missing out on money. But like you said, like people do need to learn like, hey, there's certain behaviors that are not okay, but it's not only on a college campus are they not okay. It's like in the giant overall community. It's like if you don't – and I tell my students in my meetings all the time, I'm like, if you don't learn this stuff now, like I'm a firm believer that the stuff that happens to us in life comes back around again later on in uh, some different form or fashion to make sure that we learned that lesson. So I was like, if you don't learn it now – it's going to come back around again and it's probably going to be somebody that you work with and you're not going to be seeing somebody in student conduct. You're going to be seeing somebody in the human resources department sliding you a pink piece of paper that says, sorry, but you're fired. You know, it's like that there's a greater risk if you choose to not learn it now. The punishment is on training wheels and uh, higher ed. Like you said, especially if the college needs its students in terms of like financial, but yeah, like punishment works. Like if you have no punishment, like people can do anything seems to be some kind of a happy medium to find where you can punish people and um, let them come back into the community. So you kind of touched on uh, how you're having problems with getting this like uh, institutionalized, but um, what, uh, what, what do you think like the biggest barriers are from going from uh, you know, point A, current justice system, to point B, more of a restorative justice system? Yeah, yeah. So at UD, it was really easy because the overall institution's kind of like core values was surrounded by the idea of community, the idea of the common good and the idea of like you're bigger than yourself, basically, like you're everything is bigger than just you. And 
that was just the mindset that UD had. And so it was really easy to match that with restorative justice practices and get them on the road to having a fully restorative system. Plus, they're a private institu institution, so they can kind of do what they want at that point. Like, they they do really well with the money that they have. So it's like they they kind of – and, like, the, the vice president of student development had, a, like, just thrown all of his support behind it. And it's it's about getting – kind of the top dogs to really support you. So here at Arkansas State, my supervisor, the director of the Office of Student Conduct, is very supportive in anything that I want to do with with restorative justice. So I've, I think I, like I mentioned it earlier, but, you know, we've started doing different types of restorative justice programming, and I've changed a couple of the, like, larger presentation sanctions that I have to give to some of the kids to make them more restorative in nature. I've changed kind of, like, my questioning when I go into formal hearings, like how am I approaching formal hearings and stuff like that. Overall, we're trying to start small, but we're running into, you know, there's this ideal within kind of the South, because my supervisor is from Missouri, so she's a little bit more Midwest, Northern, if you will. Um, but there's this, this idea of the good old boy system, and I think that Arkansas State was definitely a part of it before. And, you know, they got a new chancellor this past year. He's wonderful. He's supportive and everything, but he's very high up. And, you know, I'm not, I don't have the ability to get to him like I could at UD to pitch my ideas to do this, to do that. And the Dean of Students at Arkansas State, I think, is is wanting to move towards restorative justice. I think that they overall just don't really know how. And that's part of the reason why they brought me in. But I've got to have buy-in for more than just my office and the Dean of Students. Like, I've got to I, I had to form relationships at the University of Dayton all across campus in order to make those systems work. And it's just not something that I've been able to do here yet. Um, and I think a lot of that just comes from people being set in their ways, which like, you know, that also goes to the idea of like, if it's not broken, don't fix it. But I think that mindset on a college campus, if it's not broken, don't fix it, is how you become stagnant. And it's how you don't grow. And it's how you are no longer able to meet students where they are. Because a lot of students today, at least from my experience at the University of Dayton, they learn from having conversations with people and they learn from from hearing inspirational words and things like that from people and like being built up from people around them within the community. And that unfortunately is just not the mindset that Arkansas State has yet. I really would like to believe that it can happen because, I mean, if you look at Ole Miss, Ole Miss is in the South and they're a completely restorative justice system. I don't know how well it works, but they're one of the ones that's always referenced. So that's kind of strange. Yeah, yeah, in the deep south too. Yeah. That's what's yeah. It's kind of ironic that the whole like takeaway of uh, restorative justice is that like you're you're part of like a networked society, and you know your actions have consequences to many people. And uh, one of the first barriers to to get all of the moving parts to get on the same page was as you. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I know. Like, oh my gosh, but there's no alcohol allowed on campus, like at all, at Arkansas. I know, right? Wow. wow. I was like, what? It, it, this is a dry county, so like, you can't even buy alcohol at the gas station. You have to go to the next town, which is wild. But so, do you, how many? Um, off topic, I guess, just because you said it. Um, uh, how many uh, like alcohol-related um, offenses are there? Not honestly, like. I, so we did a, a story circle last week where, like, I asked a question to the students that were participating. It was a sanction. I was like, 
the question said, do you think Arkansas State has a problem with alcohol? And all the students were like, <laughs> I don't think it's any different than other college campuses. And then it got to me because, like, you know, I participate. And I was like, honestly, I'm going to be real with you guys. Like, compared to my last institution, no, there is not an issue with alcohol here. Because it's, because, <laughs> yeah, it's not here. I mean, like, when when students are caught with it on campus, it's often like they have a bottle of wine in their apartment or they have an empty bottle in a desk drawer or, you know, something along those lines. Like it's never, I think I've had one instance where they were having an actual party. And, but other than that, like when students come through, especially like when they're of age, I'm like, listen, I can't tell you what to do with your life choices. Like I'm not naive. I, I was an undergrad and I underage drank. So I'm not going to sit here and preach to you. Like don't underage drink. Like, just make sure you're doing it safely, but most importantly, like you're doing it off campus because you're not gonna have to come and see me if you're doing it off campus. And they're all like, yeah, I know. And I think it's gonna be like minor stuff like that where like one or two students will get busted, but not to the extent that it was at UD, not at all. It, I, the culture is just completely different. So you're gonna be advocating uh, dry campuses? <laughs> I mean, that was a joke. <laughs> <laughs> So you kind of, um, you didn't explicitly say it, but you said uh, um, kind of with dealing with like people from the South uh, in America, um, they um, are a bit more individualistic than say like China or Japan. So um, kind of the take home message is kind of like foreign to them in a sense, like they, they're very individualistic, they want to do what they want. Um, and they don't think in terms of like, uh, you know, oh, how is, you know, person X going to think about this? Oh, how is, is this going to upset the group? Um, so yeah, that, I imagine that is a particularly hard thing to, um, to teach to people. Like it's, I mean, it's obvious it's a grown up thing to, to learn, but, um, yeah, I, I feel like you, I, I guess you don't know cause you haven't like taught, you know, people from like communal societies, but, um, I feel like that would be a pretty big barrier. So, um, I think there's, there's just a lot of tradition in the South and there's a lot of, like you said, individualistic mindset and there's a lot of just people don't like change. And I, I don't think necessarily that like the Northern States people are more apt to change or anything like that. Like, I think that there's different areas where people are, but I think like where I'm located geographically right now, people don't like change. Like they're like, how I mentioned it was a, a dry County. They're talking about, they're building a new movie theater right now. And they're talking about adding alcohol to that movie theater. The people here are just freaking out about it because it's different. And they That's think strange. that, that, yeah, they think that like people are going to be hammered at the movie theater. <laughs> like number one, I've had alcohol at the movie theater before and it's expensive. So like, I'm not, I'm only going to buy one drink and that's only if I'm feeling bougie. Number two, like I'm not going to be getting up after I just paid like what, $14 with lounge seats now to see a brand new movie that I've never seen to be constantly getting up to go refill my drink. Like, it's not going to happen. I guess it depends on whether or not the movie's bad, right? <laughs> but also, I mean, like, I've brought bottles of wine into the movie theater in my purse before, yeah. so it's not going to stop me. So I'm just like, I don't know. It. <laughs> I think just down here overall, that's just the best example I can give for what's going on right now. But there, the mindset for change is just not necessarily here. And I think, like, some people have it but it's hard to stir the entire community into change. So moving on to a bit more abstract, so like Hobbes, his uh, Leviathan theory for government enforcement of being like the only 
agent that can like uh, enforce violence, you know, like death sentences and stuff like that. There's a big reason why violence has increased because you have a third party like adjudicating the offense and you completely take the situation and turn it cold. Basically, no one's no one's arguing for or against uh, what should happen on t in terms of the um, the punishment. It's a third party. Do you think there's any problems with restorative justice and that it has it gives the victim a bit more active uh, role? And uh, you haven't like I guess you haven't really seen this in terms of like uh, uh, your setting. But uh, what do you feel about uh, about that? Do you feel like giving the victim a voice? Uh, might make it harder for the the offender to kind of come to terms with what he needs to do? No, I don't think so, because I think that it's important for, like, that's kind of what it's based on, how it works. It's like it's important for the offender to hear how the victim was affected by it. And, you know, there are some, I've seen videos, like, not in, like, real life, but I've seen videos multiple times throughout the trainings that I've been through where, the, the offenders had a complete breakdown in the middle of the session because they didn't realize how much of an impact their actions had on other people. And so I think that, that it's, it's reliant on that, where giving the victim a voice not only gives them closure, but that's where the offender actually learns what happened, like why, why this was such a big deal, because they see it firsthand how someone was affected and in what ways. Um, so I think... It doesn't work if you don't allow the victim to have a voice. And the, but that goes back to as well, like both parties, there's a lot of like prep work that goes into if you're going to have like a restorative justice conference, you sit down with both parties separately and figure out what it is that they're going to say. And then you as the facilitator have to be able to not only mediate that, but also be aware that, you know, some people are crazy and they'll come into a prep meeting and they'll, um, they'll say like, yeah, this is what I'm going to say, blah, 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 X, Y, and Z, like lay it all out. And then they get to the actual conference and it's completely different. They just like snap, they turn into a different person. They start yelling, like yeah. all kinds of crazy stuff. So I know my, um, she was the director of the office when I was at the university of Dayton had told me a couple of stories where she was involved in things like that, where it was just completely different. And sometimes you just can't, you can't always predict how people are going to be kind of just hope for the best, but definitely like that, giving the victim the voice is the key part, I think, to making sure that restorative justice works. Yeah. It definitely adds a variable that like you can't really control. You have to kind of adapt to it, I guess, whatever they say. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Being a facilitator kind of turning whatever they're saying into like a learning outcome, I guess, for the, uh, the offender. Absolutely. And trying to almost put, like, I mean, there are some things that you can't put a positive spin on. Like, there, I know over in Europe, they're working on, like, Title IX cases. They're trying to do a sort of justice on some of them. And, I mean, more power to them. I don't see that working in the U.S. anytime soon. Um, but, you know, if some people actually want to participate in that and they are, that's how they're going to get their closure and things, like, more power to them, honestly. Remind uh, our listeners what Title IX is. It's discrimination on a college campus, but Title IX overall is like sexual harassment, sexual assault, um, things along those lines, uh, any type of discrimination, really. So a bunch of things can fall under Title IX, but Title IX that I'm referring to is the sexual violence and sexual assault and rape and everything along those lines. Yeah, it seems to be the area where most people would assume that the system kind of breaks down when it's kind of, kind of something of that nature. 
but I think it was in Canada. I'm sure you've like seen the study, but like 90% or maybe like 80% of uh, women who were like raped, they um, agreed to do um, within a study, um, agreed to like actually sit down with the offender, which is like not a percentage you would guess. Like mm -hmm. I would guess it'd be like 40 or 30%, but that's yeah. really impressive. I think women are definitely a breed that like to have the last word on things and <laughs> secretly like when, you know, when you're sexually assaulted, it's the basic premise of it is you have your power taken from you. And it's, I think, allowing them to have that power back to be able to speak on it because, you know, I, I think like as a woman, I was definitely taught like, you know, you're, you're going to cause more damage with your words or you're going to be able to express yourself better with your words than what you are with your fists. And that's just like part of, I th I would like to say that's part of everyone, but you know, I think that's part of like what's really ingrained within little girls is like, you know, you need to learn to use your mind, not your hands. And so I think like women are petty <laughs> overall. <laughs> they want to get those, the last thoughts out there and like want to, kind of make people suffer if you will but I think like also it's a way for them to get closure and a way for them to to have that power back to be able to be like you did this and I want to see you take responsibility from it because a part of restorative justice conferencing and circles and things like that too is like the victim gets to participate in deciding what the overall you know like punitive side of it is and not that restorative justice is punitive in really any way but there are other things it's like i said earlier there are sanctions that go with yeah there's some sort of punishment that they have to do and the victim gets the chance to help determine what that's going to be and i think that that is kind of what gives them that power back like you were saying a lot of people think that like oh the person gets off too easy you could imagine scenarios where somebody has a particular viewpoint that say they don't think that the offender should be punished, like, which obviously there's, there's easy fixes. We have like, you know, minimum sentences for like any kind of crime. The victim can advocate that they just get the minimum. But, um, uh, yeah. Do you think that that's, um, I don't, I don't think you think it's an issue that people can like argue down, even someone who like, say like murdered somebody could request the minimum, whether or not they get it is, you know, up to other factors, but do you think that's an issue that people could be too lenient on their offenders? I think from a third party outsider perspective, it might look like that because, but I think like the punitive side of it, like punishment part of it tends to be less after you have a restorative justice conference because you get to have that conversation right then and there. And I think that that's where people feel like the most justice kind of was served is by having that conversation and by by getting that that key piece, like the closure piece. And so I think like the people, cause the last part of it is determining what the punishment is. And I think after having that conversation and as long as the offender was genuine with the, with the victims, um, I think that they're more likely to kind of not let them off easier, but be like, I feel like in order for them to truly grow from this and to truly learn from this, like, this is what we need to give them. We, you know, we need to give them counseling. We need to give them this. We need to mandate this, like things that are not only going to overall help them, but overall help the community. And so I think like, it's really easy if you're not involved in the actual conversation to be like, Oh, they let that person off so easy. But if you're involved in the conversation and seeing the, like how it unfolds and seeing the true learning happen, I think, 
it's different. Like you, it's definitely one of those things that you have to be involved in the overall process in order to see how it actually works. Like if you walk away feeling as if that person won't offend again, it in itself reduces the the punishment that the victim typically wants to see, yeah. um, which makes sense. Like if they're willing to, you know, meet you in the middle ground of understanding what they did was wrong. That makes sense. And uh, there's a similar situation to that where you explain to this person that, you know, you, you give them their spiel of like what they did was wrong and they totally accept that. And you are pretty much convinced that they're not going to, you know, reoffend. This is kind of like the other aspect. If, if, if the victim wants to punish too harshly, um, like you as like a facilitator convince this person's not going to do this, this thing again, but the victim is, is wanting to push for the, and the family say is wanting to push for, you know, the, the highest degree they can, they can get of uh, punishment. How do you, what do you think about that kind of issue? It's obviously it's an issue that uh, our current justice system faces, but uh, interested if you have any ideas about how a restorative one would handle that. Yeah, so I think the the important piece with that is that the, the the person who was offended is not the only person that's helping decide what the punishment's going to look like. So overall, like that's a conversation in and of itself. So if like that person is in there and you know their support person is a member of their family and they're both advocating like this is what we need, this is what we need, like as the facilitator, and then there's usually a facilitator and then a co-facilitator. So like. There's somebody else in there that's like recording the whole thing, like taking notes while it's happening, things along those lines of what people are saying, what the outcome is going to be, things like that. Um, I think that's just kind of pointing out, like in asking the important questions to to the person who was offended and to the support people, like, okay, but but why is that what exactly that you need? Like, can you explain, can you delve deeper into why you need after this conversation, after you've heard this person's side of the story, you're able to share your side of the story. What is it that's still making you feel like you need the absolute worst from this person? Um, and I think that, that it's just a conversation that needs, that's at least how I would handle it. Um, like just having that conversation there. And then you have other people from the community that are weighing in on it as well. Um, people who maybe like were affected, but were not as directly affected as the main victim within the situation. Um, and, Usually those people are are a little bit more like, yeah, okay, you messed up. As long as you're taking solace in the fact that you messed up, then we can move forward. And those people usually have kind of a little bit more open minds. But I think a lot of that goes back to as well, like during that prep work, like that's something that you ask. You're like, hey, what is it that you're going to need from this situation? Like if everything goes well and this conversation goes well, you ask them ahead of time, like what do you want to see happen? And as long as that answer matches within the actual conference portion then you're good to go but if they tell you in the prep session like okay i want the absolute maximum then you have that conversation one-on-one -on -one of like okay but why like what are because that i think kind of goes in with the mindset of like there's not total buy-in you're participating in a restorative justice conference because you're wanting it to be restorative overall you're not wanting it to be punitive and if you're coming into it with you want the absolute maximum punitive side, then there's no point in even doing the restorative justice conference because you're not going to get out of it what you were, the whole the whole point of it is. Yeah, so yeah, I guess, yeah, it kind of selects against that kind of mentality in general. But yeah, I'm just kind of wary of like, you could easily imagine a situation where someone has learned their lesson and punishment would actually put them, you know, in a like, more likely situation to reoffend, you know, either probation or prison for like, say like a year or two. 
can easily imagine where, like, if if the victim could nudge it in terms of them going to prison for two years, that would substantially increase their likelihood of committing crimes again. I can't obviously speak for everyone in this case, but it would probably make them more more of a criminal if you send them to prison. Um, mm-hmm. Just generally, generally make them look less kindly upon um, interaction with restorative justice. Yeah, you have anything else to add to that? Or I think like with the with the criminal justice system, it, that's that's so hard when it comes to you know sending people to prison, sending people to however long that they're going to be in. And yeah, I mean, yes, like some actions do warrant that, but I think like you're you're literally ruining somebody's life because you're at the point when they are able to actually get out or they're able to be on parole or able to be on probation when they're done serving their actual time you know there are not a lot of places that hire people so you know that have have records and so it's like you're looking at you're either taking a gamble on hiring somebody who's got a record or you're not going to hire them and then that's forcing them back into the previous actions that could have led them into jail in the first place. So it's just like, it's one of those things where like, even if we're having the conversation on a college campus about suspending somebody, um, it's kind of like you look at their past history, you look at what the situation is here and what they've thought about since everything happened. So like I've, I've had students that have like known that they messed up ahead of time. And before they even come in for their hearing, they're like, I went to the counseling center and I had this conversation with so-and-so and and I went to the center for alcohol and other drugs and I took this assessment and I'm going to start doing this and do counseling weekly. And because I realized that I have a problem with alcohol or, you know, whatever, um, there are students that, that will do that. And those are the people that are more likely to not reoffend are the ones that are like, okay, this is a huge deal. Like I'm about to lose everything educationally. It might ruin my life. So I need to get my stuff together here. People saying that like um, it's too easy on people. Well, it should be it should be easier on you if you're willing to to learn. If you're reducing the like the reason we punish is to reduce you know likelihood of reoffense. That's like the the number one. There's a couple of different reasons people punish, but like not a ton of people are saying anymore that like you should punish because it's the thing to do. It's not because we're trying to prevent something. It's not because you know the victim needs anything. It's because a person needs punished, and it's kind of like a down and dirty way of getting you know people to not do things. But it just seems to miss the point to me, I guess. But uh, uh, yeah, another criticism is that um, you could never like fully make restorative justice available for every kind of crime and every kind of scenario. Even in uh, academia, I don't think that would be feasible. I could see that like it does. It would probably be easier. The punishment would be easier if you went through restorative justice. But at the end of the day, I don't know how you would like actually find this data. But like if you show this person is less likely to reoffend when they go through the RJ program, um, then like just get you know, punished, like suspended or something. I think they kind of they deserve that reduction in punishment. I guess. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and especially because there's just so much other prep work and conversations that are had with restorative justice too. Like it's, I think people just see it as like you, you come in and you have this one conversation. That's not the case at all. Like there's a lot of prep work that goes into it and figuring out before you even get to that final conversation where you are uniting the the victim with the offender, you know, it's, there's a lot of stuff that goes into it, a lot of time that's spent on it before that even happens. And I think that's something that a lot of people kind of don't realize about it either. Yeah. Cause you have like, um, 
you, you're, you'll be in the position as like a facilitator to recommend like counseling, right? Yeah, yeah, that can be like one of the sanctions that's imposed afterwards, like punitively. Um, but I know, like, in order to have an actual restorative justice conference, you know, if you if you're even like it doesn't matter like everybody who's participating like you have to have a pre-conference before you do a restorative justice conference and that involves like actually sitting down with somebody face to face and going through a checklist basically of like these are the questions that you're going to be asked what are you going to say and there are some people that you have to have multiple pre-conferences with because they don't even know at that point in time they're like you know, I actually really need to think on this. So can we reschedule this meeting? And I take these questions with me. So that way I know what I'm saying. And it's almost like you're practicing, like you practice with them before you go in. So that way they're not like that way. They're able to say everything that's truly going to give them that closure. I'm not surprised by it. That's interesting. I didn't know that kind of like a slow ball pitch for the upcoming, uh, that makes sense. Cause like I could see it. I could see the like offender feeling like it's an ambush if they didn't have some kind of preparation they would just be you know bowled over by the victim as ironic as that would be to see well and i know the the offenders allowed to have a support person in there too like they're in a lot of the rj conferences that i've done the offender has chosen not to have a support person in there but they definitely can they can probably have two support people if they really wanted to i mean and that's somebody that cares about them they know cares about them is going to be there for them but it's also somebody that's like hey, you did this, and, like, we need to talk about it because you need to learn from it because you messed up. So how can we make this better? How can we give back overall? And that, too, like, more than just hearing from the the victim, the person who was offended, or the other people who were offended, like, to hear from that person's support person how it made them feel to see them make this mistake that also adds to that shame piece of like, dang, I really did mess up because somebody that I care about is telling me I messed up in yeah. this way. Kind of stepping outside the bounds of, uh, I guess what you were like, um, probably comfortable with talking, at least from like a experience perspective. So like, I'm sure you know, like the, well, like Aziz Ansari and Louis CK, like misconduct allegations and stuff like that. And I don't even really want to talk about the, like, Harvey Weinstein-ish stuff where it's, like, clearly, clearly you cross, like, a line that you should probably, like, not come back into this industry like, at all. Like, <laughs> But for, like, people where, like, stuff falls into, like, social punishment, do you think that restorative justice can kind of inform how we should handle that? I don't know the, all the details of, like, Louis C.K., but, like, obviously some misconduct for, like, are you familiar with, like, some of the stuff he's done? I want to say yes. I'm kind of blanking right now. It's a lot of, like, just really bad comments, isn't it? Or is his more sexual, too? Yeah, it's more sexual. It wasn't, like, anything, like, he physically, like, held down someone and, like, raped them. But he, like, would be – he would put them in situations where he never, like, got any kind of, like, legal legal proceedings because it wasn't anything that was really legally punishable. It was very – very much fell in, like, the social realm of punishment where, like, you know, how do we – to what degree do we punish this, this person, yeah. and at what point are we okay with saying that, like, he's been punished and he's learned his, like, lesson? So, like, um, call-out culture is very much, like, not that's it, like, one one infraction and, like, you should just be vilified by the public for, you know, ever. Louis C.K. shouldn't be able to go back to comedy. Um, he's just out. Social media being the way that it is. People are brutal on social media, man. Yeah. And, like, there's no... There's no ref, right? Like, there's no mediator that's like, hey, like, this, 
this guy's TKO'd like it's 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 done. He's like been cooked to death. And I'm not saying Louis C.K. has been that, but there's um yeah. From your perspective, do you think um I mean you've been in situations where like people have done something and you want them to learn about it, but there's no it's not like a legal thing. It's just like they like you had to foot the bill for them at dinner or something like stuff like that. How do we how do we know when people have like learned their lesson and like when like if Louis C.K. would come back and be like um he's done apologies, but like like would an apology be enough to like demonstrate that he's learned his lesson or like would we actually have to like obviously be nice to like set him down like publicly with the the people that he's offended classic like rj fashion talk about it but um that's pretty unlikely yeah do you have anything to say about that it's a good question honestly because i feel like social roasting is just such a big thing like you said call out culture i mean with with people like people are just completely brutal on Twitter and they'll say whatever they want to say. And you're right. There's no, there's no mediator. And I think it's when you're famous and you're in the limelight, like it's, it's very easy for people to pass judgment on you who don't know you. And in all honesty, like I think sometimes that's a worse punishment than anything else is to have, you know, thousands of people tweeting about you about how much they hate you or like wish you were dead and stuff like that. And, um, I don't, well, I don't think that that is necessarily okay by any means. Like, I do think that, you know, they need to hear some stuff that's going to make them feel uncomfortable to learn from what it is that they did. But on a grand scale like that, I don't know if there is something that you could do to, I mean, you, you, with restorative justice, you want to look at like giving back. So I would sit there and think about like, obviously, like you can give overall apologies you can give individual apologies you know like whatever you think apology wise but like how are you truly going to give back to the overall community that you impacted that you hurt um i think like in a best case scenario you look at like the big roast sessions that they've had of like you know the roast of charlie sheen the roast of beaver it's like you know get get some people that you care about or that care about you in some sort of way but you know, whatever, even people who don't like you and just have them, like, roast you publicly. I mean, really, like, that's the only thing that I can think of. Yeah. Like, have a backbone. You know? Maybe, maybe Lucy K's next special is going to be him getting roasted by his um, his victims. <laughs> yeah, like, honestly, you know, I don't, I don't know. I really don't know. Because nothing, even if they were to try to do that, like, that's going to be publicized. So yeah. it's like, really, you're making it even worse for the people who were offended by him. And so that's hard. That's a hard question. And I think that that takes more than just one person experience with RJ. Like they got to have a whole friggin' team of people to make something like that work. But that's kind of like my first initial thoughts on it is like, you know, you did this, the, the culture that we live in today, people are going to want their justice, want to get that closure. So what better way than to just be roasted? <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, I guess in that way, like, overall, you're giving back to the community by giving different people opportunities and uh, allowing other people to to laugh because, you know, so it's – I think it's a lot of little things is what is going to be most helpful for stuff like that. And it's going to take a long time, honestly. Like, there's not any one thing that's going to overall make it better for him. But it's a lifetime of little things when you abuse power like that. I think that's about probably about a good place to stop. Is there anything else you wanted to tack on to anything? Um, I don't 
think so. I feel like that was really good. I'm actually really glad that we had this conversation because it's it's good to talk about restorative justice because it is something that I'm truly passionate about. Yeah, thanks again for doing all this, taking time out of your adult life. No problem.